This month's podcasts are sponsored by Aubergine Legal. Do you sometimes worry that your business isn't meeting all its legal compliance requirements and wonder if you're ticking all the legal boxes? Are you losing sleep worrying about a piece of legislation that you may or may not be complying with? Perhaps you need some help with your client contracts or your data protection compliance. Or maybe you're worried that your website doesn't have the right documents or legal notices in the right place. Perhaps you have a brand that you want to protect with a trademark. How about if you could outsource it all and eliminate all of your worries? If so, then get in touch with Aubergine Legal, a friendly commercial legal consultancy offering practical and clear commercial legal advice without the overwhelming legal jargon, taking the worry away and helping you to protect your business and minimise your risks. Aubergine offers a free 30-minute consultation if you have any questions or want to find out if they can help. And you can access this link and book your free 30-minute call via the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Bring Your Product Ideas to Life podcast. Practical advice and inspiration to help you create and sell your own physical products. Here's your host, Vicky Weinberg. Today I'm so excited to have Cressy Wesling, CBE, join me on the podcast. Cressy is a multi-award winning environmental entrepreneur. After first meeting the London Fire Brigade in 2005, Cressy launched Elvis and Cressy, which rescues and transforms decommissioned fire hose into innovative lifestyle products and returns 50% of products to the firefighters charity. The company now collects 12 different waste streams and has several charitable partnerships and collaborations across industries. In 2021, Elvis and Cressy also took on a farm in order to establish a regenerative agriculture project, generate their own renewables and implement a host of environmental initiatives. I first heard about Cressy after reading an interview with her and I am so happy that she agreed to join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. So hi, thank you so much for being here. Hi Vicky. So can we start if you please give an introduction to yourself, your business and what you sell? Sure. My name is Cressy Wesling. I'm the co-founder of Elvis and Cressy. Our business essentially does three things. We rescue materials that would otherwise go to landfill. We transform them into beautiful things. And then we donate 50% of the profits to charity. So the line we're most known for is decommissioned fire hoses. We collect the fire hoses that are too damaged to repair or have reached the end of their health and safety life. We make those into luggage, wallets, belts, and accessories. And then 50% of the profits goes to the firefighters charity. Amazing. Thank you. Now, I've heard your story about your inspiration for setting up Elvis and Cressy, but for anyone listening who, who doesn't know, would you mind taking us through that, please? Yeah, absolutely. I came to the UK in 2004, and I suppose I'm a slightly different kind of tourist because the things that I wanted to see and learn about were what people ate and what people threw away. So I wanted to, you know, have mushy peas and I wanted to have chips and gravy. <laughs> I wanted to go to landfill sites and waste transfer stations and material recovery facilities and um, sewage treatment systems. Because I, I, I think maybe if I'd been a doctor, I'd want to be a gastroenterologist, right? I, I, I like the guts of things. I'm fascinated by how, well, I guess really how we fail as a society. And interestingly, right now in Britain, there's two things that we're really failing at. Um, very publicly yesterday, a huge sewage slick skirted across St. Agnes Beach in Cornwall. And that's because we don't treat our sewage properly. And 
And we're just so inherently wasteful when it comes to food and textiles and, and everything else. And it, it just, it just needs action taken. Thank you. And can I just ask, what were you, what were you doing at that time, um, sort of professionally at the time when, when this was your interest? Was it in that field or was this a, more of a personal interest that you had? So I, my, my career, you know, has taken, I guess, a lot of really interesting um, turns and twists and turns. I did a politics degree and then my first job quite randomly was at a venture capital firm. And there was nothing particularly eco or ethical about it. Well, in fact, the opposite. And, and when I left after two years, I set up my first business, which was a biodegradable packaging business. So what I learned when working in a, in a, in a VC was that business had the power to make change and make change quickly. But, uh, you know, my first business wasn't a, a, a wild success. So when I came to the UK, I was really looking at, I was basically trying to find a problem to solve. So when I was going to all these landfill sites and, and street systems, et cetera, I was looking to see if there was anything that I could do. And when I first saw a fire hose in a landfill, and then I went to meet with London Fire Brigade, I really felt like, like that was my calling. And I didn't necessarily, I don't have any fashion background. I didn't know in the beginning that that's what we would make. I, I just knew that I was going to rescue the hoses. That was the, that was the reason to set up the business. That was the reason to begin. Thank you. And what was it that you found out? Um, what, did you have any numbers of how many fire hoses were ending up in landfill at the time? Yes. So from London, which is by far the biggest brigade, uh, you have three between three and 10 tons a year that are going to, to landfill. And London wow. also collects a lot of the hoses from the greater southeast. And the reason for that is because in London, they have a hose and line shop, which means that hoses which look damaged can be sent there to be repaired or decommissioned. A lot of brigades, brigades don't have that. So they rely on London. So I thought three to 10 tons, you know, given that each hose is about 18 kilos. I can, I can lift those. I can carry those. I can move those around. I can, I can cut them. I can shape them. So that's why I got excited about it because it was a, it was in very niche waste. It, there was no way to recycle it. And I felt like it was a manageable amount. And I always had, when we started, I always had the idea that if we managed to solve that problem for London, that would give us the license to solve other waste problems. That would effectively be all the permission we needed to become um i suppose more entrenched in in the waste management sector yeah that makes sense because i guess you have to start somewhere and get established and, and prove that you can do what you are setting out yes. to do yes exactly so i'm really fascinated as, as the process of turning decommissioned fire hoses into your products which by the way look beautiful and I think you've probably heard this before that I'm sure if people don't know about the material they come from that's not necessarily that wouldn't necessarily be their first thought mm. um how did you get from from one to the other and I appreciate that's a big question so we can take this in stages no I mean it's a it's a brilliant question it, at first we genuinely I mean fashion wasn't the first thing that we thought of I first thought of making roof tiles we, we, we went on a huge R&D extravaganza trying to understand what Firehose is and what it's capable of. And at the end of that, you know, reading every research report we could find on nitrile rubber, reading everything about where in industry it was used and by whom and for what and what its melting point was and what its heating point was, 
that's when we discovered that you know other luxury companies have been using a very similar material uh, for quite some time. Now they're causing it to be made. So they're having it made in exactly the thickness they want and in exactly the properties that they want. Whereas Firehose has its own constraints. So when we when when we first made a piece, uh, it was a belt. And because Firehose is long and straight and belts are long and straight, that was actually relatively straightforward. You know, the the process that to make a belt means that the fire hose has to be cut, the fire has to be cleaned, and it has to be edged. Now that required some research, but it was relatively straightforward. And we could buy a rivet press for I think 164 pounds. We could buy a rotary cutting tool for 49 pounds. So people think you need a lot of money to start a company. Um, you know, we we often say that our our only our capital investment was really 39 pounds for the cutting tool. Um, but but belts wasn't enough. And, and certainly when we started cleaning the fire hose, we were cleaning it by hand. So that was never going to be sustainable long-term if you're talking about three to 10 tons a year. And that just propelled us on uh, a wider research journey. We investigated every potential method for cleaning the hose. And it actually took us seven years to get to the method that we're using now. That process, of, uh, that's the, that journey of seven years involved Elvis building a machine, involved us using a sort of still a manual process, but one that allowed us to clean five hoses at a time. And finally doing a project with Electrolux to design a machine specifically for cleaning fire hose, which is what we use now. So that's just the cleaning. We also had to work out how to take the edges off the hose because there's this curved edge, which is baked into the hose, but took some, that took some discovery. Um, and again, that resulted in us building a machine. Um, we had to learn how to thin the hose that didn't require us building a machine, but it certainly discovered led to us to, you know, try lots of different machines and then adapt one for our use. Normal sewing machines don't work. Um, so, I mean, just at every turn, we experienced some sort of issue, but we were so stubborn about the, the project. You know, I'd made a commitment that we were going to rescue the hose. So no matter what, we were going to rescue the hose. And that just meant we kept going and kept trying. And I suppose that's why 17 years later, we're still around. And it's because it required a lot of upfront commitment and still does, still does to this day. It is a huge commitment because I'm assuming that you're taking sort of fairly big quantities of hose in one go. And actually yeah. something I haven't asked, um, which is, I think is a valid question is, so why are the hoses ended up in landfill anyway? Is there nothing else that can, be, I mean, I know there's nothing else that can be done with them, hence you taking this on, but why do they end up in landfill? So you've got two reasons why a hose gets decommissioned. The first is that it reaches the end of its 25 year health and safety life. That doesn't mean that the material is bad. That just means that they no longer deem it to be safe for the fire industry to use as a fire hose. The other reason it gets decommissioned is if you get a catastrophic tear somewhere in the hose that they can't patch, kind of like a bike tire. Some, some punctures you can patch, some you just can't. So those are the two reasons why it gets decommissioned. And the reason you can't recycle it by traditional means, like, like you would glass or aluminium, is because you've got two layers of nitrile rubber that are extruded around and through a nylon woven core. The rubber and the nylon are married. There is no way to separate them. So you can't shred the hoses and melt the hoses 
and start again. These two materials are inextricably linked and that means that all forms of traditional recycling would fail the material. And because there's only three to 10 tons a year, nobody had decided that they needed to develop a specific technology just for hoses. That's, that's why it was going to landfill, basically because it was one of these materials that we've designed in our linear society that's just a no-hope material. Well, thank you. I think this is, that's just really useful for us to understand. Thank you so much for that. Okay. So I'm interested as well, as well as the practical elements of sort of turning the fire hoses into, into products to sell on, what about the sort of the aesthetic and the design side? How did you get there? Because your bags do look really beautiful, really premium. Um, did you have to work with somebody to to come up with that? I guess I ask these questions because I'm genuinely fascinated because I'm not a person that can see one thing and imagine it as something else. Something else, yeah. Yeah, so I'm really yeah, fascinated no, by that. I think that's definitely the skill that Elvis has. Um, Elvis always can see a destination, whether with any of the projects that we take on. And, and we've been together for... Um, I don't know, since we were 25. So we've been together for 20 years now. And he, he is very good at working out how to translate an idea into an actual thing. That's something that he's always been able to do. But I think something else that's unique about our process is that we didn't ever want to design an it bag. We didn't want to design something that was trendy. We wanted to make sure that we made utilitarian goods that were well-made and, and beautiful. And that meant, again, a lot of research. We spent time in some of the, um, you know, I suppose the, the high-end department stores in London, you know, Harvey Nicks and Selfridges and Harrods, et cetera. And we were asking the, 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 the sales teams the same question everywhere we went. We weren't saying, oh, what's, what's new right now and what's popular? We were saying, what, what is perennial? What do people actually need? And after a lot of research, we discovered that there was about 11 to 16 pieces, like a, a bucket tote, for example, or a wash bag or a billfold wallet. And, and these were fairly universal shapes. And the reason why they're universal and they're perennial is because they're useful and they fit with our lives and they fit with our bodies and they fit with the kinds of things we want to carry around. So we had a, a list of items that we wanted to interpret with hose. And then Elvis started tackling those things one by one. And, and that's really made still our design process now. It's utilitarian led. And then we work on um, then we work on form. So function comes first and then we work on form. But even before form and function, the raw material is why we do everything that we do. Absolutely. And it sounds like research is a, a huge, huge part of everything that you do. Yes. Um, because I think, I'm, I'm sure I'm right in saying you're the first company to actually do this. So there's not like you're following in someone else's footsteps, you're paving the way. Yes. Yeah. I think, and in everything that we do, sometimes I wish we would just do something slightly normal, but we never, <laughs> we never seem to be able to do that. We're never following a roadmap. Um you know, in any of the raw materials that we've chosen, in any of the ways that we work. And um, yeah, we, we, we like to basically question, we like to question systems. The fashion system is one that needs questioning. It's failed. 
you know, when I first started looking at luxury, I, I wasn't thinking this is a great, wonderful, exciting industry to join. I, I was thinking this is an industry that's a structural failure. It makes money, but it makes money at the expense of the environment and its people. It, it, it isn't sustainable in any way, shape or form, despite the claims of a lot of the companies that are involved in it. Even now, um, you know, the greenwashing is just breathtaking in its audacity and just shows a complete lack of understanding of what the word sustainability truly means. So, so yeah, I think we like to break new ground because it needs to be broken. Following a path to destruction was never a path we wanted to follow. And are you finding that other businesses are following in your footsteps? I mean, you, you may or may not be aware of that, but I, has anyone come onto your radar that's kind of following in, in what you're doing it, it loads and and certainly we even um we even know so we've done some work uh promoting what we did and promoting our approach to waste with the british council and that there was a video that was made that was shared all all around the world and and we we had this report come back to us that that our video had inspired the launch of 40 new businesses and that's just one that's just one of the videos and i i know personally that you know, we do a lot of lectures at business schools and things like that. And I've had students come back to me years later saying, this led me to, to experiment with that and to try that. And I'm not saying it's led lots of people to go into fashion, but it certainly led a lot of people to go into waste and waste recovery and reuse. And, and, and yeah, I, I, certainly our language, you know, we, we were the first people to use the word rescue instead of reclaim. And now you see that word used everywhere by a lot of upcycling brands. And it's wonderful because it's an emotive word. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, it's lovely to see that there are a lot of businesses that are taking um, more responsibility, but it's also, it's also devastating to see that the fastest growing companies we have in fashion are largely conscience free, you know, perfectly prepared to, pay people wages that we could only classify as modern slavery and and churn out you know new goods at a rate that is only possible if you're destroying the environment so yes we've come a long way but <laughs> there's still such a long way to go there is um but I do think it must be really heartening because obviously as you said you're paving the way you're doing a lot of this first which is hard and timely um, but it must be really satisfying to know that you've helped other people come after you and that you've inspired that I think that's amazing because yeah. someone has to be first because otherwise you know lots of us feel like oh that's impossible or that can't be done but when you see somebody actually go ahead, go and do it I think that just opens up lots of possibilities yeah, if nobody ever changes anything, then nothing ever changes. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's actually, uh, this would be a good time actually to talk about the three pillars of your business, if that's okay, and talk about those in a bit more detail. Yeah. So I guess we we were always doing these three things, but probably about 10 years ago, we got down to this very distinct terminology because really it is what we do. We rescue materials. So rescue, we transform them. The goal for us is, is, you know, I'm not going to flip a fire hose on its side and put a piece of glass on it and call it a coffee table because that's not transformation. And maybe that will work for some people, but it's a bit gimmicky and, and it won't solve the fire hose problem. So for us, transformation is quite important. 
And then donation, which, which is, you know, our commitment to donate 50% of our profits to charity, that's fundamental. And that's fundamental at a human level. You know, we are a living wage employer. We manufacture all our goods ourselves to, to ensure that everybody who's involved in the making of an Elvis and Cressy product is paid well. Um, and also our communities are rewarded. You know, we don't have a supply chain. We have stakeholders. We put our company at the service of a community in the beginning, which was the fire service community. And it made sense for half of our profits to go back to that community. We've been questioned a lot about why we do that. And, you know, I, I give lots of different answers. Sometimes I'm very flippant and I say, look, you know, when we were in kindergarten, we were taught to share. And then for some bizarre reason, the rest of our education teaches us to be selfish and greedy. And I think we were all happier when we were in kindergarten, if we're, if we're honest, right? Um, so sometimes I would answer like that. Sometimes I would say that if you want to actually have a successful relationship or a successful supply chain, then every part of it has to be valued. So, so why not value the community that's at the heart of our business? Um, there are other times, you know, when, when people are questioning it from a marketing and a budget perspective and a reinvestment perspective, I say, look, you know, there's 66,000 fire surface personnel. What other brand in its launch year would have 66,000 brand ambassadors? Just doesn't, just doesn't happen. So there's a, so the, the DNA for us works and we won't take on a new material unless we can duplicate that same DNA because it, it's just a, it's a lovely simple code that means everyone understands what we're doing and we can be very transparent. And it also ensures that impact is built into our model. So if we grow, we can only grow by having more impact. We can only grow if we're rescuing more materials and if we're making increased donations. And if we're creating more jobs that are living wage jobs and better. So growth for us is, is only allowed by increasing our impact. And that's because the DNA of the business and the three pillars have structured us and have given us that that guiding that basically that business model that's sort of win-win-win. Thank you. And I really liked what you said about business impact. I watched a video where you were talking about that and that really stuck with me that it's not growth for growth's sake. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we have, we're always obsessed with how companies can grow and, and actually even in, in the economy, they're always talking about, Oh my gosh, we're going to, we're going to only grow at 1% this year. Why is, why is that a problem? You know, if we're, if we're structured so much on consumption, that's actually a flawed economic structure. If we can't, if a, if a family can't survive, you know, let's say a family of four can't survive, if they, they only increase their income by, by 1% every year, then we've got, we've got real problems. So I think this obsession with growth is it's not very helpful. And I know where it comes from. It comes from shareholder capitalism. It, become, it comes from a place where lots of people put money into businesses and then just expected that money to grow without their own labor, without their own intervention. They just expected money to make more money. And that, that's kind of where we went completely off the rails as a civilization. Thank you. I, I really 
I was really inspired by hearing you talk about business impact um, because I just think that flips it completely on its head and just it's just so much more human than yeah. than focusing on growth. Um, so while we while we are talking about the impact of your business, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things you know how your range is growing, for example, some of the new materials you're using, and some of the impacts that you've been able to have? Yeah, sure. So. I mean, with the fire hose range, when we started, we never thought we'd be able to rescue all of London's fire hoses. After five years, we were doing that. We've increased our annual donations to the firefighters charity from, I think, £134 in our first year to over uh, over £60,000 a year in, in recent years. We also, when we got to um, that stage where we were rescuing all of London's hoses, we were able to start looking at other materials. So we rescued parachute silk and tea sack and... Um, probably most famously leather waste. And we have a partnership with the Burberry Foundation um, because we we came up with this solution to leather, leather scrap. This is industrial off-cut leather as opposed to um, secondhand leather. And when we were promoting this, we were talking about it at a sustainability event. We were approached by Burberry and they were really excited about it and wanted to work with us. So it took us ages to get that partnership off the ground. But then, you know, once we we finally got all the paperwork signed, we were able to take responsibility for their leather scrap. Um, But also they were sponsoring us to have a whole program of apprenticeships and and teaching and work experience opportunities so that we could effectively train young people in the realities of the circular economy. It was just really a wonderful partnership. So we, we we through our leather work, we We've now been expanding that and our charity partner there is Barefoot College. Um, so 50% of the profits from the leather project are go to create scholarships for women to train as solar engineers. And, you know, Firehose Firefighters Charity makes sense to a lot of people, but, you know, what about, why, why solar engineers? And we just thought because cows are inextricably linked with climate change. It's something that everybody talks about, you know, meat consumption and cutting down the Amazon to grow more grain to feed more cows, et cetera, et cetera. And we knew that the renewables uh, revolution is the only thing that you can really do to target that. And Barefoot allows you to target that while also educating women who wouldn't have had any educational opportunities before that, transforming communities, getting them off kerosene, getting them off burning wood in the home. Um, and it's, it's just an incredibly transformative charity. And, and we're so proud to to be working with them now and I think our seventh year. Um, so yeah, there's impacts everywhere. And then we've got a new project to rescue aluminium waste. So this is littered aluminium cans. We've designed with Queen Mary University, a micro solar forge for transforming this littered aluminium into a usable metal. And we've open sourced that technology so that can be used all over the world by anyone. They don't have to pay me. They just have to build it themselves. Um, and just we just love to do exciting and wonderful things. And I suppose we're now in that phase as a business where, where we can do maybe be a bit more adventurous. And, and that's why we, just before the pandemic, we moved to a farm. We decided that being sustainable wasn't enough. We had to be net regenerative. Um, and for us, that meant taking charge of an ecosystem that was, that was damaged. And what we've been able to do here is is so far really amazing. We've been here for less than two years and we've planted 3,000 trees. 
Um, at, we're, we're practicing regenerative agriculture, which focuses on rebuilding soil health, sequestering carbon into the soil, making it uh, more uh, water, you know, making it able to hold more water and be more resilient in a drought situation. So I think there's kind of, we do a lot of things. We're in some ways spread quite thin at the moment, but um, that's because we've got 10 years to save the planet. And Elvis and I are very aware that if, if we're not having, if we're not making a conscious effort to have a big impact on biodiversity loss and climate change, then, then we're wasting our time and we're wasting whatever talent we have. Because if we're not addressing the two big problems of the day, then what's the point of us? What's the point of the business? Yeah, thank you. And one thing, because you mentioned it was spreading yourself quite thin. One thing I'm curious about is, are you actively, because I guess there's a bit of a balance, is that are you actively seeking opportunities to rescue products or materials, let's say, and turn them into products? Or are these things coming to you because when I look at all that you're doing it's a it's a lot it is a lot I think what we what we would like to do now because I think we've taken for the at the moment we've probably our stable is full so I have a huge list of materials that I'd like to go after once we're sustainably rescuing all the materials we've we've currently taken responsibility for um but that still so even though we can't process ourselves necessarily more material what we do find ourselves doing more and more is working collaboratively with other companies and helping them with their problems and we never thought we would do that so 15 16 years ago we never thought we would do any kind of consulting but we are doing those kinds of projects uh, more and more because there's a lot of companies that will have a very specific niche problem and they just need someone a little bit crazier to think about the problem for them and come up with some off the wall ideas that, that can help them. I, I, if I think about the kind of impact we need to have in a very short period of time, it doesn't make sense for the world's waste to come to our site in Kent. What does make sense is for our way of thinking to spread because thoughts can certainly spread much faster than you know, raw materials can be aggregated and transformed and sold. Absolutely. And you mentioned you're doing everything in-house on your workshop, on your farm. So you, there must be a capacity. There must be only a certain amount that you can. Yes. Process. And also, yes. And, and, you know, we haven't ever taken external funding or financing. So our, and that is specifically because we wanted to stay independent. We wanted to be able to do the mad things of the important work and, and, and really think of growth of impact before growth of, profit um so that does mean that, that any growth that we do achieve is completely organic and 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 actually relatively slow which which is fine with me but that's also in, in a time when change needs to happen quickly that's why we we think that the, the one of the most important things that we can do is collaborate and and share our ideas more widely thank you and so my final question is for anyone who's listening, who's perhaps inspired um, by your story and would like to build a sustainable business or perhaps has a business but wants to perhaps flip it and make it more sustainable, what advice would you have, please? So there's one rule of thumb that we use all the time 
And, you know, it's going to sound perhaps oversimplified because sustainability is complicated and supply chains are complicated and carbon accounting is complicated. But you have to ask yourself a, a key fundamental question. Is what you're doing going to make the world better for other people's grandchildren or not? So there's two things in that. Other people means that what you're doing has to inherently be unselfish. It can't just be about increasing wealth for you and your family. And grandchildren implies long-term thinking. You know, we can't, we, the whole shareholder thing where you have to do quarterly reports is ridiculous. You know, we've set up a farm. Imagine if we had to do quarterly reports on a farm, especially given the last quarter we've had where we had the worst drought in England since 1976. It, it wouldn't have been pretty reading. You have to plan for the long term and you have to plan things in everyone's benefit. And if, if you look at something that you're doing and go, yep, this is going to make the world better for other people's grandchildren. And if you can be certain about that, then I can pretty much guarantee you it's going to be sustainable. And it means that you won't be able to make landmines. It means you won't be able to frack. It means you won't be able to design a business model around a single use plastic. It means you wouldn't be able to run a water company, which relied on the sea to be your overflow for sewage because you hadn't bothered to invest in the infrastructure. So we have to ask ourselves these questions. And I think actually it's time for hard questions. And if your business model doesn't meet that one basic question, if it can't live up to the standard of other people's grandchildren, then you've got to shift and you've got to shift now. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you shared with us today. No problem. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening right to the end of this episode. Do remember that you can get the full back catalogue and lots of free resources on my website, vickyweinberg.com. Please do remember to rate and review this episode if you've enjoyed it and also share it with a friend who you think might find it useful. Thank you again and see you next week. If you've been inspired to start a podcast in 2024, I really recommend my podcast host, Captivate. Captivate were my top pick when I started podcasting four years ago because of how easy it was for a complete novice like me to get started. I've stuck with them for the last four years because Captivate is still really simple to use. They keep adding great new features like the ability to share ads like these and they've just been really reliable. So when you're ready to start your own podcast, you can use the link in the show notes and get a free seven day trial with Captivate.